All right, we're in a series uh, called uh, Time, Talent, and Treasure, and we're asking the question, how do we steward the resources that God has given us? And uh, today we're going to look at how we steward our time. So we looked at that last week. We're going to do one more sermon on how to steward time. Now, time is precious and time is limited. And so the question is, how do we use our time, our limited time, wisely? How do we steward our time well? Now, last week we talked about um, one of the ways to do this is to slow down. So uh, hopefully some of you have been applying that this week. Uh, people have been slowing down this week, maybe a little bit. Uh, anybody? Uh, today we're going to look at something else. We're going to look at um, another way to steward our time well is to learn how to wait. So how do you feel about waiting? A- anybody in this room enjoy a nice long wait? I heard a story this week about a woman and, and her car stalled in traffic. And so she stops the car, she pulls over, and she uh, get, opens the hood. And she's looking underneath the hood. And then there's this guy behind her who's just laying on the horn, just honking at her. And so finally, she ha- she's had enough. And so she goes back and she says, you know, I don't know what's wrong with my car. Uh, you know, but, but if you want, you can go look under the hood for me. And I'd be glad to stay here and honk for you. So I don't don't know about you, but I relate to the honker uh, in that story. And and most of us are impatient people. Most of us have a really difficult time waiting. You know, we struggle uh, waiting in line at the grocery store. We struggle, uh, you know, waiting behind an accelerator challenge driver when the light turns green. Anybody? Uh, We struggle in the waiting room at the hospital. We struggle on the telephone line on a sales call to wait. Um, Most of us struggle with waiting. Uh, There's an author, his name is Robert Levine, and in a wonderful book called The Geography of Time, he suggests that the creation of a new unit of time called the Honko Second. And he describes that as the time between, uh, or the, the time between when the light changes and the person behind you honks the horn. He claims it is the smallest measure of time known to science. So maybe you struggle with waiting. Maybe you struggle with patience. And I think it's important for us to learn how to wait because so much of our life is spent waiting. Did you know that? I mean, think about how much of your time is spent just waiting for things. And so uh, I learned this week that uh, 46 to 62 minutes a day, we're stuck waiting. And what that means is that three years of your life is spent waiting. Did you know that? Now, you might be skeptical. You're like, you know, three years, is that right? Well, it's true, and I know it's true because I learned it on the internet, which, of course, is the source of all true information. Another reason why it's important for us to learn how to wait is because uh, what we learned last week, the God that we follow is slow. Remember, uh, you know, uh, there's one theologian that called our God the three-mile-an-hour God. That's the, the average speed of a person walking. And so uh, we need to learn how to walk with this slow God. You know, we don't, you don't learn to jet set with this God. You don't learn how to run with this God. You learn how to walk with God. And so to walk with God, it takes patience. And a lot of times we, need, we find ourselves waiting for God to act. In the Psalms, this is a theme all the way through the Old Testament prayer book. There's a theme where the psalmist always says, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord is the exhortation. And of course, he always responds by saying, how long, O Lord? Like, I know I've got to wait, but, but I've been waiting so long. How long, O Lord, do I need to wait? 
And so waiting is a theme, and maybe it's a theme in your life, and this could be excruciating, this waiting on the Lord. You know, there's this tension that we often live in between what should be and what we long for and what actually is on the ground, the reality on the ground. And there's the waiting of a single person, for example, who hopes that God might have marriage in store for him or her, but Mr. Wright, Mrs. Wright, never seems to come along. There's the waiting of a, of a childless couple who desperately longs to start a family, and, but day after day, week after week, their prayers go unanswered. There's the waiting of the person who longs to have a job that's meaningful, a job that seems to matter, a job that's significant, but yet they seem stuck in a job that they loathe. There's the waiting of a, of a depressed person who, who longs for the day when they will wake up and want to live again. But it seems like week after week, they just go on and on in this state of darkness. So I don't know what you're waiting for this morning, but, but I would wager that all of us in here are waiting on God for something. All of us are living in some sort of tension today. And I love what Lewis Smead said. He said that waiting is our destiny. As creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for, we wait in the darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending that we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. So waiting can be excruciatingly difficult. And as people that are, are finite, you know, as human beings, uh, we can find ourselves waiting in the darkness, waiting for a not yet that feels like a not ever. Baby, leaving the room there. Waiting is hard. And as the great theologian Tom Petty once said, it's the waiting. <laughs> That's the hardest part. And so here's the question. How do we learn how to wait well? If most of our lives is spent waiting for things, if, if, if it takes up so much of our time, if it's part of walking with God, waiting on the Lord, how do we wait well? Well, today what I want to do is look at a, a story about waiting, and it's the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Now, when, when you look at the Bible, uh, there are so many good stories about men and women who waited on God. Uh, it's just all over the place. There's Moses who waited uh, before he delivered the children of Israel. There's Abraham who waited for a child. There's David who waited to be king. But I, but I love the story of Joseph because Joseph waited so well. Joseph is such a, a great example here, such a great uh, case study of what it might uh, look like to wait on the Lord well. And so let's look at his story. Uh, uh, this is uh, Genesis chapter 37, if you want to turn there. And the story begins like this. Jacob uh, lived in the land of his father's sojournings, sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing, pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah and his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. So, so Joseph is the uh, son of Jacob, one of the patriarchs. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Joseph is the son of Jacob. And we know that Joseph is the favorite son of his father. Now, now, now most fathers, if they do have a favorite, uh, you know, they might be subtle about it, but Joseph was not at all subtle. Uh, in order to display this favoritism, he bought Joseph a special coat. And the passage calls it a coat of many colors. Now, scholars uh, disagree about how to translate that, this phrase, uh, but, but most uh, scholars believe that it should be translated a long-sleeved ornamented tunic. 
Whatever it was, this coat uh, every single day told his brothers that Joseph was the one that his father loved the most. That Joseph was, was the one who was the favorite. Now, uh, Joseph's dad's favoritism uh, poisoned this family like, like favoritism always does. And this is crazy that Joseph did this because if you remember uh, that jo- Jacob did this because if you remember uh, it was favoritism that poisoned his own family. And what bothered Jacob most about his own parents was this favoritism. And now, uh, Joseph is doing the very same thing in his own family. The book of Genesis is so honest about this. It's so honest about the human condition. You should read Genesis sometimes. And it's so honest about how generational sins are, are sort of passed down from family to family. You know, these things that, that, that tend to poison a, a family, are, are, they're passed on from generation to generation, so honest about the human condition. As the story goes on, you learn that this favoritism, uh, you know, it leads to hatred. So his brothers hated him because of this favoritism. You know, you know when you're good at something, like baking chili, and everybody hates you because of it. You know, you just feel the jealousy, and everybody seems to be against you. I mean, Joseph felt this on a visceral level, right? His, his brothers just hated him. And you need to know this about the Hebrew writers. They are the most careful and skillful of writers. For the Hebrew authors, every single word counts. They don't waste a word. And in seven verses here, it says three times that Joseph's brothers hated him. They hated him, they hated him, they hated them. And this hatred is thick. In fact, in verse four, it says, they could not speak peaceably to their brothers. So the hatred was so palpable, they were so jealous that they couldn't even speak to one another in this family. There's an old proverb that says, wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who could stand before jealousy? And Joseph just can't stand here. Now, it's easy to think about Joseph as some uh, noble Cinderella figure, but as the story goes on, you you begin to realize that Joseph has some issues of his own. And so uh, you can think of him as being victimized by his cruel cruel older siblings, but in verse 2, you see a little bit of Joseph's character. So it says in verse 2 that he brought a bad report to to, to their father about his brothers. And in the the Hebrew, the word bad report almost always means a false report. And so not only is Joseph a tattletale, uh, he is, he's sort of a, he's sort of a swindler. He's sort of a conniver. If you know anything about his father, Jacob, he's a real chip off the old block. All right, so you're beginning to notice that Joseph has some issues. And on top of all that, Joseph begins to have dreams. And so he has this dream, and he tells his brothers about it. He says, I had this dream, and we were all in the field, and, and, and we all had our sheaves. You know, we're gathering sheaves, and it was the craziest thing. Mine stood up. My sheave stood up and, and was kind of upright, and all of your sheaves gathered around my sheave, and your, yours bowed down to me. Now, what do you think that could mean, brothers, he said in his special coat, And then sensing their displeasure, he says, you know, come to think of it, I had another dream. And this time it wasn't sheaves, it was about the sun and the moon. There was the sun and the moon and there were all these stars. In fact, your stars gathered around my stars and they began to worship me. Right, so you're you're beginning to get a little bit of a a glimpse into Joseph's character here. So at the very least, Joseph is insensitive. Like who's gonna have a dream like that and tell their brothers about it, come on. But you might call him spoiled, 
maybe arrogant, needling, irritating. The commentator Robert Alter at uh, UC Berkeley says he calls Joseph self-absorbed and narcissistic. Right, so here he is, literally having dreams about being worshipped. But as the story goes on, uh, Joseph, you know, his, he's, the, he's privileged, he's the son of his, he's a favorite son of his father, but as the story goes on, uh, right about this moment, his story takes a, a very stark detour, a tragic detour. Because like we learned, his brothers hate him, and so they, they, they have a plan. And their plan is to get rid of the dreamer. And so they, they take him out one day, they strip him of his coat, they dip it in blood, uh, the blood of an animal, they take it back to his dad, and they say, we're so sorry, but Joseph was killed by a wild animal. And then they take Joseph, and they sell him into uh, slavery. They find some uh, Ish- Ishmaelite slave traders, and they sell him into slavery. Now, for several chapters, uh, this goes on, and Joseph goes on this detour for years and years and years. And I want you to see here, we can't go through it, but I want you to see there's sort of a pause in the story, right? Joseph's life, it was going full speed, but then the story just kind of slows down, and, and, and he kind of just goes on this uh, very confusing detour. Let me summarize it. So he's sold into slavery. He's bought by an Egyptian merchant named Potiphar, and he's in Potiphar's house. He's a servant there. He rises up through the house and uh, gains some power, but then he attracts the attention of Potiphar's wife, and she seduces him, she, or she seeks to seduce him, and uh, he resists the, the seduction, and so then she accuses him of rape, and Joseph is, sl- is thrown in prison. And then he spends years and years in the Egyptian prison there, um, all alone, all in the darkness, but then he rises up through the ranks of the prison. And one day, uh, one of his fellow inmates has a, has a dream. Uh, he's the cupbearer to the king, and uh, Joseph uh, interprets his dream. And because of the interpretation, uh, he gets let out of prison. And before he leaves the prison, he looks at Joseph and he says, don't worry, I'm going to get you out of here. I'm going to remember you. But he doesn't remember Joseph. He forgets all about him. And then Joseph spends more years and years in the prison. All this time goes by, and then finally uh, it happens that, that the Pharaoh himself has a dream. Some of you know the story. He had the dream of seven fat cows and seven skinny cows, and uh, the seven fat cows, you know, he's like, what's going on, and the skinny cows and all this, st- this kind of stuff, and the cupbearer says, you know what, I remember a man in prison. He knows how to interpret dreams. And so they go and get Joseph. They pull him out of prison. He interprets Pharaoh's dream. He says, what the dream means is that there's going to be seven good years, and then there's going to be seven years of famine. And he says, if you're smart, you're going to prepare for the bad years now. The Pharaoh is so impressed by Joseph's ability to interpret the dream that he puts Joseph in charge, second in charge of all of his household. In fact, Joseph is in charge of distributing the grain during the famine. And at this point in the story, Joseph, it's been 22 years since Joseph's original dream. Now you think about that. So think about how old you're going to be in 22 years. Um, I don't even like to think about that. But you know, that's a long, long time. 22 years goes by. Joseph is finally in a place where he is second in command of all of Egypt. And he's there distributing the grain. And then he sees 11 men coming in through the line. And as the men get closer, he recognizes, these are my brothers. These are those connivers, those scheming men that that sold me into slavery. These are my brothers. 
And as they get closer into the line, they come up to the front, and one by one, the 11 brothers all bow down to Joseph. Now, you can imagine that his, the dream that he's probably forgotten about by now suddenly comes back into memory. Here are his 11 brothers bowing down to him. Now, if I was Joseph, I would have, this would have been my opportunity to get back at them. This would, would have been the perfect opportunity, poetic justice, enact revenge, you know, to get, he's got all the power, and here they are bowing down to him. This is his opportunity. But the thing about Joseph is, is instead of taking out revenge, what he does is he forgives them. He forgives his brothers. And then at the end of the story, this is Genesis chapter 50, there's this beautiful picture of forgiveness. This is uh, verse 18 of chapter 50, some of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. It says, his brothers came and they fell before him, uh, meaning Joseph here. And he said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To, pr- to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as, as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke to them kindly. That's the story. So Joseph waits. He waits 22 years for God to make good on a dream. And at the end of the day, he's no worse. In fact, he's, he, he's a man of forgiveness. He's a man of character at the end of it all. So what do we learn about Joseph's waiting here? How do we learn to wait by looking at Joseph's story? Well, I want to point out a few things. I think as we look at Joseph's story, the first thing we learn is that God is with us in our waiting. God is with us as we wait. So whatever it is you're, you're waiting for right now, whatever tension you're living in today, as you sit in the seat this morning, what we learn from this story is that God is with us as we wait. And when you look at Joseph's story, you know, as you look at the detour that he went on, as he was sitting there in the dark prison, it almost looks like God is absent, isn't, doesn't it? Like you think about his story, and in, in the middle there, you're thinking, where is God? And you think about for Joseph even, like we could read the story. We know that it works out at the end. But Joseph, he's living his story. He's in the middle of it. He can't see the end of it. And as he's sitting there in the prison, he must have felt like God had left him. Like God had forgotten about him. You know when you're at a restaurant and, you know, your order's taken and your food doesn't come and you wait and you wait and you wait. And finally you realize they've forgotten about me. This is how Joseph must have felt. I've slipped off God's radar. God has forgotten about me. I'm sitting here in prison, but there's a beautiful little line right in the middle of the story, right when Joseph is in the prison, where it says, the Lord was with Joseph. So God is with him as he waits. A lot of times we think about our lives, and we think that God is with us when things are happening. You know, when you've just got that brand new job, and you're like, wow, I didn't, wow, this is amazing. God is with me here. Or you finally get that date you've been waiting for for so long. God is with me now. Or God finally answers that prayer, comes through for you, and you're like, oh, God, now God is with me. I didn't know where God was, but now God is with me. But what we learn from the story of Joseph is that when it seems God is absent, that's when God is especially present. I love how Tim Keller puts it. He says, for God, silence is not absence. 
Hiddenness is not impotence. Often when things look like they're going the most wrong, things are most going for our good. And so what we learn from the story and what we learn as we look at our waiting and for, for our stories is that when it, things, it seems like nothing is happening in your life, Joseph wants you to know that God is with you. How do you wait well? Well, as you're sitting there in the silence, you, you tell yourself, God is still here. You know, the psalmist, as you look throughout the psalms, they're always saying, God, where are you? How long, O Lord? How long are you going to forget me? And yet there is an example for us to keep on praying, keep on journaling, keep on trusting, even when God seems to not be working, even when it seems like you're on a detour. When you look at the story of Joseph, uh, what's so fascinating is every part of his story is working out God's plan. I mean, even at the very end of it, he says, what you guys meant for evil, he says to the brothers, God meant for good. So Joseph was able to see that, that even in the darkness, God was working. God didn't say, oops, oh no. I didn't realize this was gonna happen. This was all part of God's plan. And so often we need to realize this as we're waiting, is that God is with us. God is not slow as as many other people count slowness, is what Peter says. Uh, Peter says that, and then he says, with God, a thousand years as is what? A day. And a day is as as a thousand years. So God's timing is different than ours. Uh, there's a story of, a, of an economist who read that verse, and, he, and so he came to God, and he says, God, is it true that a thousand years to you is just like a minute? And God said, well, yeah. And he says, well, if that's true, is it, is it true also that a million dollars is like a penny? And God says, uh, yeah, I guess to me that's true. And so then the economist says, well, God, could you give me a penny? And God says, sure, just wait a minute. Some of you are letting that sink in. God's timing is often not our timing, and when it seems like nothing is happening, often that is when God is doing his best work. God is with us as we wait. Secondly, I want you to see that God is working in the waiting. So when you look at this story, I think what you see is that God, through Joseph's waiting, is working on Joseph. He's changing Joseph. Remember at the beginning of the story, Joseph is having dreams about being worshipped. I mean, who does that? I mean, he was, such a, he was such a little, I said something else in the first service, I won't say it this one, he was such a little twerp, right, at the very beginning. You know, this is where he was, but through this journey, God is changing Joseph. God is developing his character. And this is something God also does as we wait, as we sit in the tension. God is changing us. God is molding us. God is transforming our character as we wait. I love what Ben Patterson says. He says, what God does in us while we wait is as important as what it is we're waiting for. What God is doing in us as we wait is as important as what we're waiting for. God is changing you. God is transforming your character as you wait. Oh, we're so frustrated in the tension. We find it so uncomfortable, but, but it's when we're uncomfortable, it's when we're in the tension that God is doing his best work in us. I love the disciples in, in uh, the Gospels. You know, Jesus can teach them about faith all he wants. He can give them parables about faith and lessons about faith, but you want to know when they really learned how to trust? It's when he sent them out on a boat and a storm came. And then he disappeared for several hours. 
and they cried out, where are you, God? Where are you, God? And then he shows up, and it was through that storm that they learned trust. And it's through our waiting that we learn how to grow. God is developing your character as you wait. At the end of the story, uh, Joseph, I mean, Joseph is a gifted man. I mean, he's, he's always been a gifted man. But he had to be literally thrown into a pit before he could become a man that you would admire. And at the end of the story, Joseph becomes a man that certainly you would admire. I mean, what we read there in chapter 50 is so beautiful. It is such a generous, loving statement to people that had wronged him. In fact, one um, Old Testament commentator, Derek Kidner, puts it this way. He says, each sentence in Joseph's reply to his brothers is a pinnacle of Old Testament and New Testament faith. To leave all the writing of wrongs to God, to see God's providing hand in man's malice, to repay evil not only with forgiveness, but with practical affection. These attitudes which, which anticipate Christ's likeness. These are attitudes which, which anticipate Christ's likeness. In other words, Joseph is molded into such a man of character here that he's actually an Old Testament picture of Jesus. God, through his waiting, is, is, is turning Joseph into a man of greatness. I love this. Through our stories, through the pain in our lives, through the waiting, through the t- tension, understand this, God is transforming you. You're so uncomfortable in it, but I want you to know that it's when, you're dis- when you experience discomfort, it's when God is actually doing his best work. There's a, there's a scene in the... Um, Lord of the Rings series, we just read it with our kids, and it's at the very end where uh, Frodo and Sam, Samwise, they're right before the uh, Mordor, you know, the big mountain, you know, the big volcano that's erupting, and they're both exhausted. And Frodo actually falls down, and he just can't move anymore. He's, he's just laying there, and he's given up. And Sam is just sitting there, and he's like, what do I do? You know, we need to get this ring up to the top of the mountain. And it says that Sam was tempted just to curl up and, and just die there. He was tempted just to lay down and give up. But here's what the story says. It says, but even as hope died in Sam, or seemed to die, it was turned a It was turned to a new strength. Sam's plain hobbit face grew stern, almost grim, as the will hardened in him. And he felt through all his limbs a thrill, as if he was turning into some creature of stone and steel that neither despair nor weariness nor endless barren miles could subdue. And as one commentator said about the book, Sam's nature is changing as a result of his journey to Mordor. And as we are on the journey, as we wait in the tension, God is morphing us. He's changing us into people of greatness, just like he did with Sam there. Sam was always kind of this pudgy, silly, lovable, but kind of cowardly person. But on the journey, God works courage in this, in this hobbit. And God is changing us as we wait. Number three, God's work, as we wait, God has work for you in the waiting. This is the third lesson that we learn. God has work for you as you wait. Now, as you look at the story here, what I love about Joseph is that the whole time he's on the detour, you know, I mean, his life just kind of goes off. And, and if I was Joseph, I might have just said, you know what, I'm just going to sit here and wait until God fulfills that dream that he gave me. But that, that's not what Joseph did. Even in the prison, Joseph was working. Joseph never allowed the dream to distract him to what was sitting right in front of him. 
Joseph is active all the way through the story. And so often, as we're waiting on God, as we're waiting for that future, as, as we're waiting for God to answer that prayer, fulfill that dream, we can just kind of you know, relax and say, you know what, I'm just going to wait then. And we, we, could, we could be so focused on the future and so focused on what, what, we God, what we want God to do for us that we forget what's right in front of us. Before Joseph uh, went to Egypt, he was obsessed with doing great things. But in the prison, he learned how to do small things greatly. And I love how Blaise Pascal puts it. He says, uh, this is a prayer. He says, Lord, help me to do great things as though they were little, since I do them with your power. And little things as though they were great, since I do them in your name. He says, help me to do the little things as though they were great things. You know, we're looking for God to do great things. God shows up when great things happen. And we're waiting and we're praying and God says, don't miss the moment right in front of you. There are things that I'm calling you to do as you wait. You know, there is work for you to do as you wait. And notice Joseph was able to take advantage of those moments and he didn't waste the waiting. You know, he was able, able to just sort of do the little things. He didn't despise the day of small things, as Jesus puts it. But he was actively waiting. You know, when you look at scripture, when it talks about waiting on the Lord, this is an active waiting, like a farmer waits. You know, a farmer doesn't just sit there and wait for the plants to grow. He plants and he waters and he works. And it's an active waiting. He's, he's doing what he can do in the moment. And there are things we can do as we wait. Maybe we can't bring about the thing that we're waiting for, but there are things you can do. And God is calling you to be faithful in the small things. And so the story of Joseph teaches us how to wait. And so let me ask you the question this morning. Are you waiting well? I don't know what it is you're waiting for. No, I don't know what, what, it is, what tension you're sitting in this morning, but I want to encourage you to do as the psalmist do, does, wait on the Lord. Wait knowing that God is with you. God does his best work when it looks like nothing's happening. Wait knowing that God is working in you. God is changing you and developing you and growing you even as you wait. And wait knowing that there are things to do as you wait. There are things that God wants you to be faithful to do even as you wait. You know, the, the Bible says that those who wait on the Lord, they mount up like eagles. Those who wait on the Lord mount up with eagles. And I've, I've heard that birds have, have three types of flying. There's the first type where you're just flapping your wings, and that takes a ton of work. And then there's another kind of flapping where it's like this long kind of flaps, and then there's soaring, where a, an eagle will just mount up and it spreads its wings and it just kind of glides higher and higher on the wind. And the promise is that if we wait on the Lord, if we trust him in the waiting, that we will mount up like eagles and we will soar. Someone says, well, how do I do this? Joseph did it, that's great for him, but how do I wait? Because I'm so frustrated and how do I know that God is with me as I wait? Well, notice the story of Joseph is a picture of a, of a greater story. Uh, there's a greater Joseph. His name is Jesus, hated by his brothers, despised and rejected, waiting all of his life to, to ultimately hang on a cross where he said, my God, my God, where are you? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
But through Jesus Christ waiting, through his God-forsakenness, he shows us that God loves us. There is proof, there is evidence that God loves you and that he is with you as you wait. There's proof that, 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 there, that God does his best work through waiting, and it's in the cross of Jesus Christ. In the cross, we know that God is with us, and we can trust him. And so this morning, we're going to take communion, and uh, during communion, we're going to reflect on Jesus Christ and what he's done for us and how we can trust him in our waiting. And so let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you were a God who, who loves us. God, you are, you are the three-mile-an-hour God. But I pray that we would trust your slow work. God, whatever tension we're sitting in, and I think in some measure all of us are in tension, you know, living in the world that already not yet is tension of unresolved problems, things that are, that are not the way they sh- should be and are supposed to be. God, I pray that you'd fill us with trust Fill us with faith. Help us to mount up with wings like eagles and to know that you are with us. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be faithful, Lord, to the things that are right in front of us. Lord, as we wait, as we sit in the tension, there are people all around us that we can serve and love, and I pray that you'd help us to do that. This morning, as we take communion, we pray that you would speak, that you would nourish us through your body and blood. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.